I wonder if we can uh, just very quickly show our appreciation to uh, our worship team uh, this morning. Let's say thank you to them. Uh, I want to say special thanks because th this weekend is one of those weekends in the church calendar when you look at it and you think, who's actually around this weekend? Well, we are, which is uh, great news, isn't it? Um, but uh, we're so aware that our team who serve us so faithfully week in, week out uh, became rather skeletal uh, this week as lots of folk were away. So really appreciate you guys for, for leading us in our worship this morning. It, it's been good. I think it's been good to go back to a slightly more acoustic version uh, of, of worship together, which has been really great. Well, if you have been with us uh, during this summer holiday season, you'll know that we've been taking this journey through uh, the book of Acts, a, a book that tells the story of the early church. Well, what words can we choose to describe the early church? I would want to say they're faithful, they were transformative, they were pioneering, they were sometimes unconvention un unconventional, they were prayerful, persevering, courageous, generous, and mission-minded. What brilliant words to describe what every local church uh, should be. This is a rhetorical question. Don't shout the answer out. It might be embarrassing. But I wonder how many of those words describe us uh, as a local church as we continue the work of reaching this world for Jesus here in Christchurch. Do you ever think to yourself, I wonder what it would be like to have been part of that early church story? Can you imagine yourself there on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit came in power, uh, there was a blowing wind, there were tongues of uh, fire appearing over people's heads, and then people started speaking in languages which were not their own. What an amazing encounter that must have been. And then we think of uh, Peter preaching his great sermon in Acts chapter 2. He discovered who Jesus was, and he says incredibly boldly and courageously, Jesus is the one that you need for your salvation. What should you do in response to this message that Jesus died and he rose again? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we read 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ after that sermon. I would want to suggest that is not a bad day's ministry. And then we go on and we, we read in, in, the, in the scriptures, in Acts, about all these incredible things happening. You can imagine the church coming back each evening, telling stories of healings and of deliverances, of demons being exercised, of people coming to faith, of, of miracles. The gospel spreading rapidly throughout the known world and churches being planted and popping up all over the place. What a time to have lived and loved uh, Jesus. What a time. Wouldn't it have been fun to be part of that early church? Well, I want to encourage you this morning to spare a thought for the leaders of that early church, because I expect it would have been a nightmare, to be quite honest, as they were trying to manage persecution and opposition, as all these kind of cultural, religious differences started to pop, pop up, as they were trying to work out what doctrine, sound doctrine looked like, as pagan practices started coming into the church. And can you imagine for a moment trying to manage all of those people and all of their different needs without church suite? I mean, it must have been incredibly tricky. Sorry, Peter. Peter, there's another 500 people who want to join a home group. Can you quickly sort that out, ready for next weekend? Paul, I'm really sorry. There's another 600 people that need to be prepared uh, for baptism. And it just leaves me wondering, what did the church leaders do in their spare time uh, back in the early church? Well, over recent weeks, we've journeyed through chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 of Acts. And as we got to chapter 14 last week, as Kay opened up the scriptures, there have been some challenges, there have been some dangers, some difficulties. But there's a bit of a sense at the end of chapter 14 that it could end like every good fairy tale ends with the statement, and they all lived happily ever after. That's the sense you have in the local church. It's been a great adventure. Paul and Barnabas have come back from what was going to be their first uh, of a couple of mission trips. 
And at the end of chapter 14, they returned to the church in Antioch, which had been, in a sense, their sending church, their home church, the church where Christians, believers, were first called exactly that, Christians. And they planted this church. You can imagine their sense of excitement as they're coming back to encourage the church leaders, but too to be encouraged themselves. And the church in Antioch is flourishing. It's full of mostly Gentile, non-Jewish converts. These are converts. These are not church hoppers. uh, But these are brand new believers. And you can imagine Paul and Barnabas were really looking forward to going back there to see what was happening. Well, let's dig into Acts chapter 15 and see what they find. I'm actually going to read for the end of chapter 14. It says this, From Attila they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, then you cannot be saved, they were saying. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Oh dear, so far from coming back to be encouraged, they come back to a stinking can of worms, a doctrinal, a theological tsunami. Now, Acts chapter 15 is one of those places in Scripture where you realize that no one in their right mind would be stupid enough to be a leader in the local church. It's what you discover from Acts 15. Who would ever want to do that? Because what you discover from Acts 15 is that uh, the proverbial stuff starts hitting the proverbial fan every now and again in the local, local church, even when really good gospel stuff is happening. And the moment Paul and Barnabas get back to Antioch, they have to deal with this mega conflict that has the potential to make or break everything that's been going on since Jesus died and rose again from the dead. That's how serious the issues are that they're facing. There was this one group of people described in in verse 1 as certain people, and they were teaching that circumcision was essential to salvation. Now, in contrast to that, Paul and Barnabas and Peter had been teaching that circumcision was utterly unnecessary. It was a hangover from Old Testament religious laws. Paul and Barnabas, Peter were arguing, circumcision is not required, and therefore you can cut it out. I'm here all morning. Thank you. I've got other circumcision jokes, but they're not appropriate. Now, of course, we need to recognize, don't we, that we're 2,000 years on from this debate. And in so many ways to us today, it seems like an absolute irrelevance, especially if you're female. But actually, this was a big deal. In this moment, the church weren't just debating what color to paint the toilets. They weren't trying to discern before God whether they serve instant coffee or filter coffee. This wasn't a simple clash of two equally valid options. This wasn't a minor theological issue, but this was a gospel issue. Get this wrong, and there was a chance that people like you and me even today might have a wrong interpretation of the gospel. Now, in so many ways, this conflict began not in Acts chapter 15, but it began way back in Acts chapter 10, if you know the story. Peter was on the roof in Joppa, and he was praying, and he falls into a deep trance. And in this trance, he sees a sheet fall from heaven, and this sheet is full of all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean, according to Jewish dietary laws. And a voice then speaks to him and says, Peter, you can kill and you can eat. But of course, Peter, being a devout good Jew, um, says in response, I've never eaten anything unclean and I never will. No way am I going near those unclean animals. 
And the voice responds, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. In other words, if God says it's okay, then it's okay. Now, this sequence happens three times. Now, of course, that's Peter's favorite number, isn't it? And Peter starts pondering the the meaning of this vision. And as he's pondering it, he gets an invitation to go and meet with a Gentile, a non-Jew called Cornelius. Now, through this encounter, Peter realizes that this invitation uh, and this vision actually wasn't about dietary requirements at all. It was about God's inclusive plan for salvation. Just as the sheet contained both clean and unclean animals, so the gospel message was for both Jew and Gentile. Now, Peter initially kind of struggles with this idea of accepting that a Gentile believer could come to Christ. Why? Because he had deeply ingrained beliefs. It's a scary thought, isn't it? That our prejudices, that our biases, that our preconceptions against others might well be the very thing that get in the way of that person coming to faith in Jesus. Well, Peter goes on and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and to his household. And shock horror, Cornelius and his family receive the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, there's this validation uh, that Gentiles, not just Cornelius' family, but all Gentiles can be included within the Christian faith. So this event in Acts chapter 10 is a pivotal moment for the early church as it expands beyond its Jewish boundaries and, and it sets the stage for Christianity to spread to people of all nations. Now the trouble, and we see this quite clearly from the dispute in Acts chapter 15, is that not everyone got the email about the rule change and not everyone understood the meaning of Peter's vision. And now, lo and behold, just five chapters later, it's all kicking off because certain people, certain people were teaching that unless you're circumcised, according to Jewish tradition, then it was impossible to be saved. Now, we need to remind ourselves that these certain people were Jewish Christians. They were Christians. They were committed followers of Christ. And in fact, they had no problem with the idea that a Gentile, a non-Jew, could become a Christian, but their argument was, well, they can only do that after they've effectively first become a Jew through circumcision. Now, I don't know about you, but in many ways, I can kind of understand their perspective. These certain people themselves had probably miraculously come to faith in Jesus despite their upbringing, and they would have throughout their upbringing been scrupulously following the law of Moses and all the Old Testament uh, religious laws. They've done that for the whole of their lives, and then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, do you know what, those rules don't apply anymore, at least they don't apply to a particular group of people. And I wonder if you can identify with that. It can be really hard, can't it, to let go of old habits. It can be really hard to let go of old rituals or old traditions that we've always held as being dear. You know, we humans are weird, aren't we? We can be allergic to change and to new ways of thinking. Creatures of habit, deeply conditioned to the the old syndrome of we've always done it this way. Heard people say that, we've always done it this way. I can't tell you how many times in three decades of church leadership I've heard people say that. We've always done it this way. But it's possibly one of the most dangerous phrases that can ever be expressed in the life of a church. Because if God says there's a new way or there's a different way or a way that conflicts with our traditions and our entrenched views and we ignore it, then we have a problem. Now, this was clearly a matter that issued to these certain people. I really love that Scripture describes them as being 
certain people. Because in my experience, it's often certain people, people who are so fixed in their ways and so convinced that their way is the only way, who often find themselves, sometimes a good reason, let me underline that, but sometimes not, often find themselves in conflict with other believers. Now, of course, that's a terrible definition of the word certain as it's used here in the text. Actually, as they speak of these certain people, I think uh, it's actually an act of grace. It's altogether more gracious, which I'll explain as I finish. So this was a matter that really was important to these certain people. How do we know that? Because these people had traveled from Jerusalem down to Antioch to teach their perspective without Southwestern Railway, and it was a journey of about 300 miles. They'd committed about uh, a week of their life, probably, to take this arduous journey so they could teach these things. That's how much it mattered to them. And the argument of these certain people was this, is you Gentiles are not really right with God until you are circumcised. In other words, your faith in Jesus alone is not enough and you need to add to it. And in response, Paul and Barnabas and Peter say, no, 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 no. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's enough. Christ is all sufficient and nothing needs to be added. So at core, the issue, which I think is a really great question that all of us would do well to wrestle with in our lives, is what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be in relationship with him? How do we do that? Now, of course, there are some things, aren't there, in our Christian faith where we can agree to disagree. And actually, we do that in the life of the church here at CBC all of the time. We can debate till the cows come home our end times theology, our eschatology, if you want a posh word. We can debate that till the cows come home. Each of us will hold different pneumatological convictions, understandings of the Holy Spirit. I'm just giving you big words so you can impress your friends. Lots of us, and this is true within the churches of Christ Church, will have different ecclesiologies. In other words, how we organize our churches. We can compromise on all of these things. How are you signing these, Vicky? Is it going well? <laughs> but then, of course, there are other issues where we have to draw the line. And for Peter, for Paul and Barnabas, they're saying this issue is one of them. This issue of circumcision really matters. How is a person made right with God? Does Jesus alone save you or can Jesus only save you with your help by first being circumcised? Do you save yourself by good works? Is it possible that you can save yourselves by your good giving to the life of the church? Well, let me at this point just point out we've got a build project coming up. First of October, we're going to be having a pledge day and a, and a gift day. Will you save yourself by giving to this project? The answer is no. But it might just be you save somebody else's soul as a consequence of your gift because it goes to the mission and the ministry of the church. Will you save yourself by good giving, by good works, by good church attendance? No, in fact, what's trying to be argued here is all those things are filthy rags compared to allowing Jesus alone to save us and to rescue us. Peter and Paul and Barnabas are arguing Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything in the economy of God. No additives and no preservatives. Now, these certain people were Christians who'd been saved probably from a a Pharisee background. These were people who loved the law, who would have argued that the law is essential to our salvation. And, of course, of all people, the Apostle Paul would have understood their position. He was one of the most zealous. He's the self-confessed, most pharisaical Pharisee of them all. But this was not an issue where they could agree to disagree, where they could find a classic Baptist compromise. We love those, don't we? This was a matter that had to be 
resolve. They weren't content to say, you go off and have your church and do it your way and we'll have ours. Paul and Barnabas, you'll notice in in the text as we continue to read on in a moment, we're not happy to compromise by saying, let's quickly get this resolved by all the men just after the service popping down to the local outpatient surgical center. We can get this done and dust it. But instead, as we're about to hear, they debated and they discussed the issue with these certain people. When they couldn't reach agreement at the local church level, they then send Paul and Barnabas, including Peter, and a delegation off to Jerusalem to engage in what's referred to here as a church council. Let's read on from the second part of verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers really glad. I love that. That even as they're journeying up to discuss this matter, they're telling stories about how unlikely people have come to faith, and all the believers uh, loved that. They were very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. Now, as I finish this morning, I want to make four really quick points of application, and they are very quick. And I think these are four points that will serve us really, really well as a church community as we move forward together as a church. But it might just be as well that these four points of application this morning might be helpful to you if you find yourself in conflict or in need of finding resolution or restoration in a relationship uh, with somebody that you're in difficulty with. And perhaps the first thing to notice is how how these early disciples resolved their conflict as their very, very first response. Did you notice their first response was not to storm out of the members meeting huffing and puffing when someone said something they didn't like? No one's ever done that here. I should just underline that. They didn't resign their membership and go off and join another church that aligned with their theological views. Although, again, I do want to say sometimes there are reasons that you should do that if the church is getting it really wrong. That's never, ever happened here in the life of this church. But instead, what they do is they have an open and respectful discussion to resolve their conflict. The beginning of resolving all conflict is a willingness to welcome those that you do not agree with. Verse 4, when they, that's Paul, Barnabas, and Peter, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed, it says. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Isn't this brilliant? They were welcomed by people who did not necessarily agree with them theologically. That's the mature response. That's the don't bury your head in the sand response. That's the don't give somebody the silent treatment response. You know, it really is okay to spend time with people, to welcome people, to have an audience with people that you may not agree with. Now, that's true in the life of the church as we debate theology and doctrine and all sorts of other big important things but it's also true in the context that you might be facing today as an individual as you face conflict. It's really okay to spend time with people you don't agree with. Point number one. Point number two is that they actively listened and they openly discussed. Did you notice that as they met, the number one agenda item was not getting their own way? Instead, it seems to me, with genuine inquiry, with bucket loads of humility, they were seeking God's guidance through active listening and through open discussion. 
active listening and open discussion. Now, can I share with you rather vulnerably here for a moment? This is my moment of honesty. Don't judge me. This is where I can fall short. I can be way too quick to make my views and my opinions to be the very first to be heard in any meeting. And I'm very aware that sometimes you can do that in order to shape the direction of the meeting. And actually, making our own views the most important and the only view is incredibly arrogant. I'm very aware of that. Don't throw stones at me. But did you notice in our story, all the speakers receive a respectful hearing and multiple perspectives are heard long before Peter, Paul, and Barnabas ever chose to speak or were invited to speak. It was only after they've actively listened, it was only after they've actively discussed to gather in all the different perspectives that Peter, and remember back to Acts chapter 10 in his vision, so he was a bit of an authority on this subject, actually got up to speak. What Peter then says, and only then, becomes the strongest argument in the room against the view of the certain people around this issue of circumcision. And what I love about Peter as he shares is it's a beautiful fusion of sound theology, bringing in that vision that he'd had with some humility and personal testimony backed up by all that they'd seen God doing in their midst amongst the Gentiles. And then Barnabas and then Paul after Peter get up to share their testimony too. Now listen to what happens. Verse 7. After much discussion, after much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he had given it to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. No additives, no preservatives. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and the wonders that God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. So firstly, it's okay to welcome those or spend time with those that we disagree with. Secondly, there's a challenge to actively listen, to openly discuss, to be slow to blow our own theological trumpets without first having heard the views of others. And then there's a challenge, I think, to listen for biblically grounded wisdom of godly leaders. Let's read on, verse 13. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to chose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the gen- even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does, th- who does these things, things known from long ago? It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are returning to God. Did you see how verse 13 uh, begins? When they had all finished, once everybody had heard, then James stands up, and he's the most senior leader amongst them at this point, having heard what they've all said, eventually makes a judgment. And he makes his decision by anchoring all of that active listening and that open discussion And he brings in all of that testimony. Where does he anchor it? He anchors it in Scripture. 
If we anchor our wisdom in anything other than Scripture, it's going to become a floaty balloon that just floats away. James biblically grounds everything and prayerfully in those words from that prophecy of Amos chapter 9. And if you read on, he goes on to discern between essential and non-essential beliefs for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of fostering unity. I don't have time to speak about that. But there is a challenge for us to anchor our wisdom always in Scripture. And then finally, there's a challenge, I think, in this text to graciously pursue grace. Do you know, sometimes Christians can be the least graceful people on the planet, despite the fact we've received more grace than anyone else on the planet. And did you see that in this whole process, an issue that's got the potential to break the church, the apostles and the elders, the whole council, the church together, they make a decision, and it's not a decision of compromise, but it is a decision that they're going to embrace the expansive grace of God. What began as confrontation ends with togetherness and with praise as they declare. If you read on verse 28, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's church unity. That's conflict resolution at its very, very best. And it's all about the grace of God. It's about accepting the grace of God, but also it's about expressing the grace of God graciously. Let me finish with this thing about certain people. Why were they called certain people? Well, it wasn't because they knew everything. It wasn't because they thought they were an authority on absolutely everything. I think they were called certain people as an act of grace. My guess is if you go back and read the minutes of this church members meeting, each of those individuals is probably named. There were these certain people. They were called, but, 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 but. Everyone knew who they were. Everyone. But why are they referred to in Scripture as certain people? Well, I think it's a gracious response. Do you ever do this? I told you you were wrong. I knew you were wrong from the beginning. Don't know why we bothered with this whole thing and going through this whole charade, because I knew you were wrong from the beginning, and I'm going to tell everyone to make sure they knew you were wrong and I was right. Do you ever do that? No, no, of course you don't. I don't either. As followers of Christ, we are the recipients of God's lavish grace. And I think there's a challenge here in the text to not only be recipients of God's lavish grace, to allow others to become recipients of that lavish grace. But even in conflict and difficulty, and as we're trying to find resolution, to respond graciously. They're referred to as certain people. Their names are not listed so that you and I today can open up the scripture and say, oh, those terrible people, Frank and Bob. I'm trying to pick generic names. Sorry if you're called Frank or Bob. You see, when you win an argument, you don't need to gloat and boast about it. You don't need to prove that you were right and everybody else was wrong. We can even be gracious in conflict resolution. And that's what the people of God do here. They're recipients of God's lavish grace. And even as recipients of that lavish grace, they respond graciously even in conflict. I don't know about you, I've got some learning to do. I better remove that post from social media that was telling everyone that I was right and so and so was wrong on every issue. We can respond graciously. Can we pray together? It really feels to me like 
these scriptures in Acts 15 are really important, actually, for us as a church at this moment in history as we journey forward with all the issues that culture might challenge us with. Lord, we want to be a people who listen intently for godly, biblically grounded wisdom as we wrestle with all the things that we need to wrestle with as a church. Lord, I thank you for the example of this early church who were ready and willing to welcome those that they didn't necessarily agree with, who were willing to sit and to chat and explore together these big and these difficult theological doctrinal themes. I thank you for a church who openly discussed and actively listened to what one another was saying. I thank you for godly leadership that grounded all of that listening in Scripture. And Lord, thank you today that as a consequence of the decisions of this council and hundreds of councils that would come after this one as well, that today I can stand and say, I know Jesus. I know Jesus because people heard the word of God. Lord, we don't want to be barriers, we don't want to be a hindrance, but we do want to be a people who are really faithful to you and to your word. Help us in that, we pray. And just a moment of stillness for you. I wonder if today you find yourself in conflict with somebody or there's some issue which actually just needs to find some resolution. I wonder if some of these principles might be for you. Just take a moment before God and just a few minutes of stillness before we move on. Just to do business with God, to listen to his wisdom, to tell you what you should do. And then I'm going to pray for you that you'll have the courage of God, the empowerment of his spirit to act in the way that he's calling you to act. Just be still for a moment. a great phrase. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us resourceless as we tackle what might be some really difficult things, actually, for some of us. Thank you that by your Spirit, you go with us. So Lord, we pray there's something we need to deal with, something we need to tackle, a conflict we need to find resolution in. Lord, Holy Spirit, come, make us bold Make us courageous. And we pray it for your name's sake and for the sake of your gospel. Amen.